were singing Jesus, I wondered, I wondered what our crowns look like to you. We know what they look like to us and how important they are to us how valuable they are to us, but what do they look like to you? It's the best we have to offer. And so we pray, accept it. It's really all we have to offer, and so we pray, cleanse our offering. Thank you for the chance to remember who you are and remember who we are. And for your invitation for us to become more like you. We pray that you would help our hearts hear your word through your servant for your sake. And we cry holy, holy, holy. Well, if you have your Bibles this evening, I'd like to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9. And I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 18 with you. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 18. You know, as most of you know, my family and I lived in Europe for 10 years before coming to the Nazarene Bible College. And I have to admit that even though it's been almost five years now since we've been back, that I'm still rather gratified with the fact that I get to preach and speak in English instead of in Dutch. Um, when I was at Nazarene Theological Seminary, then I remember hearing Dr. Charles Gailey tell us that you can't learn a second language until you've made a thousand mistakes and cried 10,000 tears. Um, well, I can certainly testify to the truth of that, and I think that my Greek students probably can too. I remember one of the first sermons I preached in Dutch, and I was preaching about the fact that Jesus wanted to be our Savior. And after the sermon, a man came up to me and he said, you know, it took me about half the sermon to try to figure out what in the world you were trying to say. He said, in Dutch, the word for Savior is the word for loser, and you kept saying for loser. Do you hear much of a difference there? I mean, I hear a little difference, but not much. But anyway, he said, in, in Dutch, the word for loser, the word you said, is the name of a person who unloads freight out of trucks. And so I kept wondering why Jesus wanted to empty my trucks. Um, well, I wish this was the only mistake that I'd made. Um, I have asked people if they wanted to come into church and make a bid instead of coming into church to pray. I've gone into stores and asked a butcher for poison instead of fish. I tried to ask directions from a woman, and instead of asking her where the next exit would be, I asked her where our next date would be. <laughs> that can get you in trouble. Instead of telling people to have a good day, I told them to have a good roof. Instead of asking for sandwich bags in a grocery store, I've asked for a sandwich shop. I didn't know I had to leave the store to get there to get those sandwich bags. But 
Instead of asking someone if they would please tell me what, what month it was, I asked them to please shut their mouth. <laughs> Instead of telling the pastor of our church in Holland that um, I like it when he gives us encouraging sermons, I told him that I like it when he gives us belching sermons. <laughs> yes, I've made more than my own fair share of mistakes. Perhaps the most embarrassing mistake that I ever made was when I was once talking to a very dignified woman in Germany who was an officer in the Salvation Army. I worked with the Salvation Army for several months after I graduated from college. Um, and in case you didn't know in the Salvation Army, then the pastors are actually called officers. And so this woman was a very high-ranking pastor, officer in the Salvation Army. Well, the room in which we were speaking was rather warm. And so in the midst of our conversation in German, I asked her if she was warm. As it turns out, instead of casually asking her if she was warm, I was casually asking her if she was gay. <laughs> I will never forget the look on her face as she said, as a matter of fact, young man, I am not. <laughs> um, I can hear her words even now. And so when I tell you that I'm delighted to be able to speak to you this evening in English, you can certainly believe me. Well, the scripture I want us to look at today is found in one of the most significant passages in the entire book of Acts. This is the story of the conversion of Saul, whom we know better by the name of Paul. The conversion of Paul is such an important event that Luke even tells it to us three different times in the book of Acts. He tells us the story of Paul's conversion in chapter 9 and chapter 22 and once again in chapter 26. As you'll remember the story, then Paul was on his way to Damascus in order to arrest any Christians he might be able to find there. On his way to Damascus, though, he's confronted by the risen Christ. Blinded by this flash of light from heaven, Paul had to be led by hand into Damascus. Just before our passage begins, Luke tells us that Paul, blinded and confused as he was by his encounter with Jesus, did not eat or drink anything for three days. And that's where we pick up our passage in Acts chapter 9, verse 10. I'd like to ask you to stand with me this evening as we read from our Lord's Word. Acts 9, beginning with verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, there are a few people within the history of the church who have played such an important role as the Apostle Paul. Paul was the first Christian missionary. He was the first church planter. 
He was a pastor. He was a superintendent of churches. He most probably wrote almost half of the writings that we have in our New Testament. Now, that would be the credentials of a very important person. Don't you agree? But as important as Paul the Apostle might be, I don't want to talk to you this evening about Paul. I want to talk to you about someone else. This person is certainly nowhere as famous as the Apostle Paul. His conversion was almost certainly less dramatic than the conversion of Paul. And yet the saving and healing touch of the Lord upon Paul's life may never have taken place if it were not for the faithfulness of this one obedient believer. The obedient believer that I want to talk to you about this evening, of course, is Ananias. When you read Acts chapter 9, verse 10 in the Greek, then it looks like Luke almost didn't plan to include Ananias' name in this account at all. Luke writes, now there was a certain disciple in Damascus. Now, Luke didn't need to tell us anything about this disciple, but he goes on to say, almost as an, off, as an afterthought, well, Ananias by name. I'm really glad that Luke gave us Ananias' name, because I love the name Ananias. Do you know what the name Ananias means? In the Hebrew language, the name Ananias means God is merciful. God is merciful. I really wonder if Paul would have become the great Christian missionary and apostle he became if it had not been for a man by the name of God is merciful. Can you imagine the horror that Paul must have felt when he was confronted by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus? I think that this is a detail that we have a tendency to overlook. I believe that, that Paul, actually Saul, was horrified by the revelation that he received in his encounter of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. Paul was a devout Jew. As a Pharisee, he had dedicated his life, his entire life, to the serious worship of God. This was his life's passion. This was his life's obsession. When the earliest believers began to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, the true Son of God, Paul was convinced that this was blasphemy. Jesus was dead. He was not the Son of God. He was not the Messiah. Paul was convinced that the message of the Christian believers was an outright flagrant lie. And so in his eagerness to honor God, Paul set out to destroy this lying Christian faith. Can you imagine then the horror that Paul must have felt when he realized on the road to Damascus that Jesus truly was the Son of God? Instead of working together with God to defend his holy name, Paul suddenly realized that he was actually working against God. He wasn't for God, he was against God. And how could God ever forgive him? How could he ever come into the presence of God again? His whole life's ambition to serve God faithfully had been completely shattered by that blinding light there on the road to Damascus. And in blindness, Paul fasted and prayed for three days. How could the righteous God ever forgive him? It seemed to be hopeless. But then, an obedient believer showed up on the doorstep of the house where Paul was staying. As the name of the Jewish visitor was passed on to Paul, I'm certain that Paul did not miss the significance of that name. Paul, there's a visitor here to see you. He says that God has sent him to talk with you. His name 
is God is merciful. His name is Ananias. Your name might not be Ananias, but what message from God are you carrying around with you? The message that Ananias brought to Paul was even punctuated by the meaning of his name. Paul, you have failed. Despite your best intentions, you have committed horrendous crimes and sins against God and his people. But Paul, God sent me with a message for you. God is merciful. I wonder what message God is communicating through you to the people that you meet. What is your name? What name do your actions, what name do your words communicate to other people? I hope we won't forget Ananias because God is merciful. And he calls each one of us to be an Ananias of mercy to the lost and seeking people of our world today. As we look at Ananias in this passage, we read what the Lord said to him in verse 11. The Lord told Ananias, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Do you ever find yourself wishing that God would speak to you as clearly as he seems to talk to Ananias here? I mean, this is incredible. God gives Ananias direct and explicit instructions as to where he's supposed to go. He sends him to a road that was called Straight Street. Now, back in those times, the houses did not have numbers on them for their addresses, and so the houses were identified by the names of the owners. And so God even gives him the name of the owner of the house. The house on Straight Street belongs to Judas. God then tells Ananias the exact name of the person he needs to be looking for. He needs to ask for a man from Tarsus whose name is Saul. Wow! I mean, God gives Ananias such explicit instructions here. Isn't that incredible? I mean, don't you ever find yourself wishing that God would speak to you as clearly as he seems to be talking to Ananias here? You know, I used to spend a lot of time wondering why God does not give me such explicit instructions. Haven't you felt this way before? God, why did you give the people in the New Testament such explicit instructions, but you don't give them to me? Come on, you can be honest about that. Don't you feel this way sometimes? Why doesn't God tell us exactly what he wants us to do? Well, like I said, I used to wonder why God does not seem to give me such explicit instructions, but I don't wonder about this so much anymore. And you know why? Because God does give us explicit instructions. It's the question is whether we're obeying them or not. The entire New Testament, well, as far as that goes, the entire Bible contains God's explicit instructions to me and to you. Let me give you a few examples. We have God's explicit call to salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, Paul writes to us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Then Paul writes, I tell you now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. What about these instructions? You can't get more explicit than this, can you? The question is, do I want to obey them? Have I been reconciled to God through the forgiveness of my sins? Have you been reconciled to God through the forgiveness of your sins? We also have God's explicit call to holiness. 1 Peter 1.14 and following. Peter writes, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all you do. 
for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Here again we have some pretty explicit instructions, don't you think? Explicit instructions is the way that God wants us to live our lives. Are we trying to live a life of holiness? Are we willing to obey these instructions? God also gives us some pretty clear instructions about witnessing to other people. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he told all his followers, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Well, are we followers of Jesus? Then his instruction to us as his followers could not be more explicit than this. Jesus wants us to tell others about him. This is not just a task for missionaries or pastors. This is an explicit instruction for all of his followers. The question is, will we obey him? Will we obey those instructions? It even occurs to me that God gives us instructions about our preparation and study. Paul writes to his young helper, Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. As people who have been called by God into special service as pastors, as missionaries, as counselors, as leaders within our churches, are we following his instructions? Are we faithfully preparing ourselves? Are we faithfully studying for his service? Well, when I finally began to realize that these promises and commands in the New Testament were meant for me, yeah, for me, and that I was supposed to follow them, I didn't need to feel bad about not receiving explicit instructions anymore. The fact is we have explicit instructions already. And yet, you know what? So many times, even while on the one side I'm saying, God, give me these explicit instructions, on the other side, I find myself trying to talk myself out of following God's commands in my life. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever done this before? I'm sure that you have. God places a tug within our hearts to do something, and then we find ourselves summing up all these excuses as to why we can't or we shouldn't do it. Live a holy life? I can't do that. There's too much sin in my life. I'm confronted by too many temptations. I'm just being attacked too much by Satan. I can't do it. But God has called us to live a holy life. He tells us to stop sinning through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and to walk in the light even as He is in the light. It occurs to me anything else is disobedience, isn't it? Witness to my family and friends? I can't do that. You don't know my friends. You don't know what they've said about my faith. You don't know what they've said about God. But God calls us to witness. This means that he also opens doors for us to witness. Or maybe like me, then you find yourself sometimes falling into the idea that maybe God really can't change people. Or maybe God doesn't talk to people. Maybe God's not dealing with the lives and the hearts of the people around me. If God calls us, we have to obey. Anything else is disobedience, isn't it? I'm reminded of the story of Nikolai Kalishnashenko. Say that several times. Nikolai was a recruiter for the Communist Youth Party in the former Soviet Union. His job was to reach out to young people and to convince them to become members of the Communist Party. And so he spent hours 
talking to young people and praising the merits of the socialistic, atheistic program of the Soviet communists. But somewhere within him there was a deep hunger that the Communist Party could not steal. Despite his training in the propaganda of the Soviet system, then Nikolai knew that there had to be something beyond this. There had to be some kind of God. And despite the fact that he often had to publicly denounce the presence of such a God, he felt a burning hunger in his heart. I did not know what the man's name was. I've heard it, but it's even more difficult than Nikolai Kalishnyshenko's name is, and so I can't say it. But one day this Russian man met Nikolai as Nikolai was speaking to young people on a street corner about joining the Communist Party. Despite the dangers that this man certainly faced by witnessing to this young recruiting communist, this man felt compelled by God to talk to Nikolai about his faith in Jesus Christ, and he obeyed God. It was not long after this that Nikolai, perhaps the most unlikely candidate you could think of, gave his life to the Lord. I met Nikolai while he was studying at the, at the European Nazarene Bible College in preparation to be a Nazarene minister. He said to me, Dan, I used to try to recruit people to the Communist Party, but now I'm recruiting people into a much better party. Now I'm telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you how thankful I am that this man told me about Jesus. My life has never been the same. You see, Nikolai is the living legacy of one man who decided to obey God rather than just to play it safe. What about you? Are you just playing it safe? Or are you, am I, willing to obey God's instructions to you and to me? As I think about the different excuses that we often offer up before God, I'm reminded of our story about Ananias once again. Ananias had some objections too, didn't he? Look at what Ananias says in Acts chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Ananias says, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. You know, one of the things I really like about Ananias, besides his name, is that he asks God questions without actually objecting to what God has asked him to do. Ananias was not being disobedient in asking God's, God questions. He simply had some serious concerns about what God was asking him to do. Now, I've heard some people say that we should never question God when he tells us to do something. And they sometimes suggest that we might even be guilty of some kind of sin if we question God. But I'm convinced that God does not mind when we ask him questions. As a matter of fact, John tells us in his first epistle that we need to test the spirits to see if they are of God. Well, you know, you can't test something, you can't test someone unless you ask them questions, can you? Just remember that if you have me in class, too. <laughs> Expect lots of questions. And so Ananias' questions are not a sign of disobedience. They are a call for confirmation. Has God called you to do something? Don't be afraid to ask for confirmation. I think that God expects us to ask for confirmation. And if it is from God, the call and the conviction will not go away. And we need to obey. We need to obey. Perhaps the most inspiring thing to me about Ananias is the fact that he seems so ordinary. 
I mean, in terms of the scope of the New Testament, Ananias is a nobody. As I mentioned before, it even looks like Luke almost does, didn't even mention his name. Ananias seems so insignificant. We never hear about him in the Bible except in connection to the conversion of Saul. And yet Ananias was used by God. And what a harvest he reaped through his disciple, through his convert, Saul. One of the lessons that God is teaching me is that his perspective is usually much different than my perspective. There are so many things that happen in our lives that seem to be so insignificant. So many times it seems like the things that I am doing are so insignificant. But God often looks at these things differently than we do. And it's all a matter of perspective. I think that one of the main objections that we often bring before God when he asks us to do something is the objections that our efforts are actually too small or too insignificant to really make any difference. We don't have the power. We don't have the authority. We don't have the influence. We don't have the money to really make a difference with our actions. So I guess I shouldn't do it. Well, you might be surprised what God can do with our obedience. Reverend A.J. Finkbeiner. Has anyone ever heard of A.J. Finkbeiner before? Um, he was a retired missionary who attended my father's church in San Jose, California when I was in high school. A.J. was an incredible man. Um, he could do so many things well. Not only was he an extraordinary preacher, but he was also a very accomplished artist. He could draw anything, sculpt anything, paint anything, and build anything. He was also a lot of fun to be around because he always seemed to recognize the funnier side of life. And I love when people are like that. But Brother Finkbeiner once told me when I was in high school about a revival that he had held at the European Nazarene Bible College back in the late 1960s. He shook his head and said, you know, it's a funny thing how God works. When you start to realize how he does things, all you can do is determine to obey him, even if we don't understand. He then went on to tell me about this revival that he held at the European Nazarene College. He really hadn't want to, wanted to go there at all. He said that his schedule at the time was so busy. He was serving as a missionary in the Middle East at the time in Israel, and he just couldn't figure out why he should interrupt some of the very important things he was doing and involved in right then to go and preach to a bunch of college kids in Europe. But he said that God just wouldn't give him peace about declining the, the invitation, and so he went. Brother Finkbeiner looked at me and said, Dan, I preached probably a hundred revivals in my life, but I've never had a revival that seemed to be such a failure as that revival. In the entire week of services, there was only one person who came to the altar. He said, I did everything I could do to get those people to come to the altar. No one except one person. He said, I went home from that revival feeling frustrated and like a complete failure. But then A.J. Finkbeiner looked me in the eye and said, but do you know who that one person was, Dan? That one person was a man by the name of Kor Holman. Kor Holman was a Dutchman who was visiting the Bible College during those special services. After those services, he decided to enroll at the European Nazarene Bible College. When he graduated, he went back to Holland and he founded the Church of the Nazarene. Today, there are more than 1,500 Nazarenes in Holland and thousands of other people who have been touched by the message of heart holiness. Brother Finkbeiner said, what seemed like a failure back then has actually turned out to be one of God's greatest success stories. When I look back on it now, that revival with only one seeker 
was not my worst revival. It was my best revival. The funny thing is I didn't realize back then when I was in high school that my own wife would be a result of Cor Holloman's ministry there in Holland. Time and time again, God seems to use the unexpected to bring the greatest glory to his name. So many times you want to object. God, I can't do anything. My contribution is too small. It's too insignificant. God, I can't become a pastor. I can't become a counselor. The classes are too difficult. I'm struggling financially. I'm struggling emotionally. I must have misunderstood your call. But God calls us to obey even when it is hard, even when it's difficult to understand, even when it doesn't seem to be worth it. You know, I've been at NBC here for almost five years now, and I am amazed at the way that Satan increases his attacks against you, the ones who are trying to obey God's call. But don't let Satan win. God did not call you here by accident. I know that it's hard. I've seen the struggles. Sometimes I'm the one who causes those struggles for you. I've seen the battles. There we go. Do we have a witness? I've seen the battles you find yourselves in. But God has a plan. He has a plan. He has called you, and he wants, and he expects you to obey even when it's hard. Can you imagine what would have happened if Ananias had not obeyed? Now, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. But it's very possible that Paul would not have been converted. It's very possible. Just think of it. The outpouring of the message of salvation to the Gentiles, the outpouring of the, of the message of salvation to us, might have been obstructed and maybe even prevented if only one man, Ananias, had been unfaithful and disobedient. Sorry, God, it's just too hard. I wonder what God has in store for you because of your obedience. I wonder what he has in mind with the person he is calling you to speak to. I wonder what he has in mind with the sermon that he is calling you to preach. I wonder what he's planning for the testimony he is calling you to deliver. I wonder what his plan is for the person he is calling you to counsel. God called an unknown, unheralded man by the name of Ananias to be obedient, and the world has never been the same. This evening, I only want to ask you to do one thing. Be faithful to him. Be obedient to his leading. He has given us his instructions. He has given us his instructions. I believe that each one of us knows deep down in our heart what the Lord wants us to do. I'm convinced of that. We know what he wants us to give. We know what he wants us to be. And he wants us to trust him and to obey him. I wonder what would happen to our world. I wonder what would happen to our family. I wonder what would happen to our church. I wonder what God would do with our life if we were to be completely obedient to God. You know, there's only one way to find out. Here I am, God. 
I will obey. Amen. Are we following his instructions? He wants to obey. You know, it took me a long time to realize that I don't have to fully understand God's plan and instructions in order to obey Him. He just calls us to obey. Let's obey Him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the call that you've placed within our lives. I thank you for the fact that you're calling each one of us to obedience. You're calling each one of us to trust you. You're telling each one of us to take that step, even though it just doesn't seem to make sense. And yet, Father, you call us, and you're faithful, and you'll lead us, and you'll guide us, You'll never abandon us. You hold us. You embrace us with your love and with your spirit. Father, we want to be obedient. Whatever you call us to do, whatever it takes, however hard it might be, however I might, might struggle, how confused I might be, I want to obey. I want to follow. Father, thank you for the presence of your Spirit to guide us. Lord, as we go from this place, would you remind us in the dark moment? Would you remind us in the moment when we're not feeling well, when we're tired, when things seem to be against us, that you have a plan? and that you are faithful. And the work that you begun, you will bring it to its completion. And your name will be glorified. Your kingdom will be built. The gates of hell will not be able to withstand us. The strength of Christ will be with us. And we will overcome by the power of the Spirit. Praise your name. Lord, we go with that promise. We go with that certainty. We go with that determination through your spirit to obey. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Go in his peace.